0: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SubChina's daily, newly designed China Access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our website at subchina.com. We've got reported stories, essays and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region to China's travails as it wrestles with a surging wave of COVID-19. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, a couple of weeks ago on this program, uh, my guests Sun and Paul here joined me in sketching out some possible scenarios for the kind of world that uh, that China, the U.S., and really everyone will be looking at when the smoke finally clears and this terrible war comes, as sooner or later it must, to an end. That was all done in kind of ad hoc manner, but in the time since, I've been giving that exercise a little bit of thought and. If, in keeping with the classic scenario planning practice as I learned it, we're obliged to boil down and radically oversimplify all the uncertainties we're facing into just an X and a Y axis, then it makes sense to me that one axis should be geopolitical and the other geoeconomic either a more unipolar world or a more multipolar one in terms of the overall geopolitical shape of things, and either a more globalized world trending toward more integrated trade systems and data flows and tech standards and and movements of people, or a more vociferous, decoupled world, a a more geoeconomically fragmented world. So right now, it's truly all up in the air. All four of these things feel possible, the, the scenarios that are generated I think we can tell stories of how we got there uh, depending on what happens with the war, on elections or selections in different countries and other domestic political factors in in, in key countries. And I think we can all imagine what these different scenarios might look like when viewed from various national capitals and from different ideological perches. Uh, Clearly, the way that the U.S.-China relationship and, of course, China's relationship with Russia play out in in the next few months is going to determine a huge piece of this. Uh, We have made that a big part of the focus of recent shows. But there are obviously other important factors too. And in this and upcoming episodes, we will be looking at some of those. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by someone who can lend just a ton of perspective to at least two of the vital and consequential relationships that China is attempting to navigate, uh, relationships that remain very much in flux and have not assumed anything like, you know, a final shape. So Marina Rudyak is assistant professor in Chinese studies at the University of Heidelberg with an interim professorship appointment at Goethe University Frankfurt in political science as well. Her research focuses on China and international development, uh, but she also works on Sino-European relations and and much more. So obviously she's someone who can speak to both the important China-Europe piece of the overall picture, which is something we have so far really neglected and to the China and the Global South piece of it, which is really important and uh, also something we haven't delved into quite enough. But her breadth of insight on China, on Russia, and the war in Ukraine derives also from her personal biography. Indeed, that matters a great deal here, as you'll see when I ask her to talk about it, which I hope she'll do just after I welcome her. So Marina, a very warm welcome to Seneca.
1: Thank you so much for the invitation, Kaiser. It's um, it's a pleasure to join you, um, especially because I'm such a huge fan of um, the podcast. So I'm really honored by the invitation, and yeah, thank you once again.
0: Entirely our pleasure. Uh, great. It's it's just wonderful to have you, and also a big shout out to my friend Nason at, at the University of Pennsylvania for recommending that I reach out to you. Uh, he was absolutely right. <laughs> so. Uh, Tell us, tell us about your fascinating family background and how you ended up in a China-focused academic career.
1: Ooh. Yeah, so I am originally from Moscow, and what you know you could call a typical child of a very typical Russian academics or or Soviet academics. Um, so I was born in Moscow, and in 1991 we went to Germany for one year because my father is a mathematics professor. Then he was invited to Heidelberg <laughs> for a year and we left and the Soviet Union collapsed. And like many, many um, Russian scientists at the time who were outside of this former Soviet Union, we stayed. So we went for a year, <laughs> never went back. Um, and this is um, how I happened to, to grow up in Germany So how I ended up in China studies was by sheer coincidence and not that an interesting story. But what became very, you know, very interesting part um, is that quite quickly I got interested in the political ideology of the Chinese Communist Party. Mm, mm. Only much, much later I understood how this actually related to my family history because my grandfather was a historian at the Institute of Marxism-Leninism which was also ah. the central archive of the Soviet Communist Party and I grew up surrounded by books about you know Friedrich Engels and Karl Marx uh, back then not really understanding what it was about, but somehow it instilled me with an understanding and with a feel for for ideology in the Communist Party and probably also, you know, the early years in in primary school in the Soviet Union, you know, being bombarded by, by all this, you know, ideological concepts, You were back then as a child.
0: Yeah. So Marina, when I, I said that you could lend perspective to at least two of the relationships, what I initially had in mind, of course, was first China in Europe, which is, you know, one area of your specialization, And second, China and the Global South, which is, of course, another topic you focus on. You do a lot of work on China's development initiatives, uh, including, but I suppose not limited to the BRI. Uh, But I actually wanted to start with another one of these core issues, the China-Russia relationship. And this is something, as I've said, that we've covered quite a bit on earlier shows since February 24th. But when we were chatting earlier, you actually took some issue with an idea that seems almost to become conventional wisdom, this idea that somehow we can discount if not entirely ignore potential frictions between Moscow and Beijing over their long border and their overlapping interests in Central Asia. I mean, I, I, I think about how much skepticism there was about the Sino-Soviet split back in the late 1950s, and even after it actually happened in 1960, there were a lot of, of Americans in the intelligence community uh, who were were deeply skeptical, who didn't believe that these two ideologically compatible countries could possibly have such you know a schism but anyway this idea now that russia is perfectly at ease with china building so much vital infrastructure in countries that used to be you know just 30 years ago part of the soviet union that strikes me also as maybe anyway you are somebody who has spent a lot of time in central asia Uh, i think you spent some years of your childhood in bishkek and and your your mom i think you said was originally from tashkent when we were talking earlier Uh, So you see things differently from what some of our other guests may have said. So is the potential for tension, for dispute, or even conflict greater than appears to be commonly believed?
1: Well, I think and feel that there is a lot of potential for dispute. Mm. And it's not just the potential for conflict. The conflict is there, but the topic is so sensitive that everybody refuses to touch it. It's your classical elephant in the room. And it's so sensitive, you know, to the extent that nobody even dares to drop a word about it. Um, And I remember, so... Long time ago, when I wrote my master thesis um, on China's energy security policy in Central Asia, mm-hmm. I tried to find any evidence of potential conflicts. Also, because I spent uh, six months in in Bishkek during my university time, my interning ah, with um, yeah. GIZ, which is the German aid agency, where you know the potential conflict between China and Russia just was so tangibly present. And what surprised me that neither in the Russian discourse nor in the Chinese discourse, and I talk about the written discourse, could I find any substantial traces? And this was just so suspiciously absent Hmm. that you can think, you know, that the topic is so sensitive, nobody dares to talk about. And just from having spent time both in, in Central Asia, still being pretty much connected to Russia and also to a certain extent to Russian politics and having lived in China for almost five, no, actually longer than five years, but having worked probably as close to Chinese politics as you can as a foreigner, the feel that I get is that, of course, there is a big conflict. Hmm. And I think this is, you know, indeed, as you said, a big misunderstanding when you look at it from from the West, because it's, it appears so obvious that, you know, they would be ideologically aligned. But the truth is, and we have, probably enough historical evidence for that, that Mao actually never trusted Stalin. And some archival research I did for, for my doctoral dissertation of Chinese foreign aid, I came across sources that argue that actually China was forced by Stalin to stay involved in the Korean War under the threat that if China you know withdraws, all the Soviet aid will be stopped. So It was not a love relationship to begin with, Mm. and it never developed into one, not even till today.
0: Fascinating. That's fascinating. I I think it's worth remarking that I I am a believer in this kind of intangible ability of some people just to have, like you said, a feeling for a country or for its people. I mean, I think it does make a difference. And, you know, even... You know, in the in the face of seemingly contradictory empirical data, or in your case, in the absence of any discussion, I think you can still s- sometimes read into that absence a real significance. So I, I do value it. I think it makes a huge difference when it comes to to empathy, to national psychology, to understanding, you know, the semiotics and political communication and, and and much else. This is actually a topic I, want, I hope to explore in another podcast in a series that I want to get back to. So I would love your thoughts on 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 this. On you know. Because I think there are a lot of people you know, in this data-driven world of ours who would challenge this idea that you can just sort of have a feel for that you know they, they would say that, you know doesn't this just boil down to essentialism? Do, you, do your claims to have special insight into the culture uh, do they evaporate in, in the face of, of 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 actual empiricism? And i I again, I, I'm somebody who very much values that that uh, the, the feel. As much as I respect the data, how, where do you come down on this? And as, have you encountered pushback on this idea before?
1: Like, first of all, as social scientists, we of course know that the answer substantially depends on the question we ask, and no good social scientist will deny that. At the same time, you know what we call, you know, when we when we talk about feeling, it's not something. Who is esoteric and tangible? We talked about, but it's rather <laughs> kind of it's an intuition, and, and psychologists know that that intuition is in fact you know neural pathways that have built through experience and experience and experience, um, right. and just through observation. So I think, and everybody who spent a substantial time in another culture will know that being in the field leads you to ask a different set of questions. And, um, as somebody who's been very long in the region you know and who saw the tensions, you know there is not much trust towards China in Russia, there is huge xenophobia in Central Asia, there is also not much trust towards Russia and China. I mean there is enough evidence for that and then, if you take the step and ask okay if if we see tensions on the ground, there must be evidence for them somewhere in the sources, and then in, you you go into the sources and you see nothing just just nothing this is proof if something is absent this is a proof too so for me you know when i talk about the feeling this is nothing you know esoteric it's just kind of the set of questions that that emerge in me and and where the questions come is experience and i am aware of The argument colleagues make that they they didn't find evidence for the tensions. But if you put all the puzzles on the table, um, maybe in the sense of Bruno Latour's um, actor network theory, where he argues, you know, you really need to map out everything and then you will see that some pieces are missing. And this helps you to ask questions and to answer questions. In this case, if you map it out, some pieces are so visibly missing that it leaves you no other possibility than there is a tension nobody talks about.
0: That's right. In this case, the evidence of absence trumps the absence of evidence. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, it's the dog that didn't bark and how significant that dog is. Yeah, I I think that's fascinating. Before we go on to talk about China's diplomatic efforts with Europe and and other things, I want to get your take on where you see China more broadly on, on Russia and Ukraine right now, just building on what we've just talked about. I think a lot of people are having trouble getting a sense for, you know, how firm Chinese commitments to Russia are, really, in light of especially what some of its diplomats have said and done. Uh, Ambassador Qin Gang saying, for example, on an American television news show uh, that despite China's friendship with Russia supposedly having no limits, it does have boundaries or it does have a bottom line. Um, And then the latest example where we had, you know, Zhang Jun, who's China's UN ambassador, remarking at a U.N. Security Council briefing on Ukraine uh, on April 5th. Today, by the way, is April 14th. He called the, the photos of killings of civilians in Bucha deeply disturbing, and he seemed to indicate support for an investigation into what led to the killings. He didn't call out uh, directly Russia for this. But anyway, is all of this just PR, uh, or can we read anything into these sorts of statements is your your sense?
1: My sense is that on Ukraine, China has tried to walk a fine line or if you call it a little bit more directly, to muddle through Uh something that we've seen in many other contexts because in the end, China is always on one side and this is the side of China. Um, And what we can see that kind of China tried to have the cake and eat it in a way. Yeah, yeah. So to keep the partnership with Russia, which is important, you know, at the moment, given the state of the China-US relations, you know, to keep, you know, the economic relations with the EU, you know, as as good as possible. And we saw, you know, the outcome of that at the EU-China summit, which, um, as Joseph...
0: We'll get to that, yeah.
1: (laughs) It has, towards Ukraine... Chinese officials tried to be as supportive as as it, as it gets. So basically, China tried, in a way, not to step on anybody's feet for the sake of its own interests. And of course, in the situation as it is now, it's not working. And it is quite likely that China underestimated Putin. For certainly, it underestimated the Ukrainians, but in that, I think everybody underestimated the Ukrainians. So, China yeah, is not yeah. better, worse off on that than anybody else. And it seems, you know, it seems to be the a nightmare. You know, Chinese officials have been hoping it's going to go away, but it's not.
0: <laughs> indeed, indeed. So, you mentioned EU and, and relations with EU, which is, of course, one of the central topics that I want to discuss what has gone so wrong for Beijing on that front? Uh, But before we get to that central question, which I think you have a lot to say about, I want to build up to this. So maybe bear with me while we lay a little bit of groundwork here. So I I can't remember who it was that first raised this idea with me in conversation. I think it might have been either John Holden or Robert Daly. Um, As soon as I heard it, I recognized there's a lot of truth in it. And that is this, that for an American who works on China, looking at the European relationship with China is very illuminating because you can examine important issues like trade like technology like human rights without viewing them all through the lens of national security something which is totally inescapable unfortunately in the American discourse this is this is the case also like for example with Australia right in the case of 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 Europe though Beijing doesn't reflexively answer any criticism with you know this familiar allegation of hypocrisy of uh, you know whether you think that these reflexive answers are genuine skepticism over America's moral standing or or if it's just mere whataboutism, uh, the you know this the foreign ministry or the the state routinely does this with American critiques so like immediately turns around. But so so two questions first, to what extent do you think that well first of all this is true what I'm suggesting. Uh, and second, do you think that this is changing now when it comes to Europe? I mean, my worry is that it is changing. I wonder whether the uh, these issues are also becoming sort of securitized in the European mind more in, in more recent years.
1: So I think, first of all, um, you are correct in the sense that there are certain differences between the EU and um, US in terms of to what extent topics are linked to the issue of national security.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: And I would say that the EU just being this multi-state construct, which is very diverse internally, we see it a lot, you know, that the EU can't uh, agree on many issues um, due to this (laughs) diversity. But because of that, I think the EU has a much higher tolerance for ambiguity than we see in the United States and it certainly has a different stance on the issue of national security. And this became apparent to me actually in 2004. So my father works um, at, at the U. F. Um, and has been in the U.S. for many years. And I remember I visited him in 2000, uh, at, well, should have been 2004. It was just before the invasion of Iraq. And I was walking around on the campus and I talked to students who were prot- kind of organizing something in, in favor of the war and i asked them you know why why are you in favor why do, why do you believe that there are weapons of mass destruction um and said well first of all it seems plausible and we are afraid of iraq and for me as a european um this was so difficult to understand because just geographically we are so much closer <laughs> than the united states and i I don't know if it's fair to say this, that certain national security assessments in Europe are maybe a little bit more realistic, Um, you know, Mm. or or honest, I'm not sure, you know, this this would be a very far (laughs) cry um, (laughs) to say this. But there certainly is, you know, at very different levels for ambiguity, and therefore a, a, probably a higher readiness to accept a multi-track and multi-level approach, that, which would be yes, criticize China on human rights, but at the same time continue to trade. Hmm. But as you said rightly, the situation is shifting at the moment, ah. and this has. Certainly to do with Xinjiang. This has certainly to do with the overall change of climate in, in China, which is hurting European companies. It has also certainly to do with the two years of pandemic and the inability to travel because the personal exchanges are not there. You know, The, the, the right. conversations in between are not there. And what we are left... For the most part, except for those of us, obviously, who who work on the subject, is the official propaganda on the Chinese side, like, you know, the Global Times, English newspapers. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and also, the Chinese stakeholders are very limited in their contact to, to Europeans. So we end up with the images of each other being based on projections and not on real interactions.
0: Yeah. That's, that's so well said, and I mean the example of these students in in, in Florida supporting the Iraq War in contrast to students maybe in Heidelberg, <laughs> just to, who were a whole lot geographically closer to Iraq itself, and you know also part of of NATO, also part of the West, uh, not feeling that security threat. Yeah, that's very instructive. So let's talk a little bit about what China's foreign policy goals are with respect to Europe. I mean, it, it to me has seemed always to be quite straightforward and, and obvious i mean first it seems to me that china would like europe to have a kind of strategic autonomy so that europe you know eventually at least will exist as a separate pole in a genuinely multipolar world with its quite distinct quite independent interests quite apart from those of the united states and so far uh, they've tried wherever possible to to you know kind of exploit and to exacerbate whatever differences there are between the U.S. and Europe. And second, and I think for the most part, Beijing, uh, this is the true of all all sort of arrangements, whether we're talking about, you know, ASEAN or or, or anything else, they would rather deal with countries individually rather than collectively. Yeah, and the reasons are pretty obvious. So that, that dr- drives a lot of their behavior. Uh, if those are the goals, and, and do tell me if you think I've gotten this wrong, but and it's got to be clear to Beijing right now in april of of twenty twenty two that things are moving in entirely the wrong direction. Uh, the the Russian invasion of Ukraine has driven the EU and the u s. much closer together. Uh, and as far as European unity, well, it, look at the European Council vote on on uh, you know on Russian sanctions when the invasion started right. I mean it's it was unanimous, and it it's this signifies an unprecedented level of cohesiveness and to top it all off I mean as we were we were talking about there's just all this increasing suspicion and distrust toward China what has beijing failed fundamentally to understand about europe or or have they maybe fallen under the spell of the well admittedly very formidable discursive power of of the american media uh what 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 are they getting wrong um
1: big well, question big, i know <laughs> yeah yes it is a big question um well first of all i think um The biggest part China probably got wrong is, um, you know, is to believe that for Europe, um, economics and trade will go above everything forever. Ah, And and this is, I mean, this is not, certainly not the case. For me, it was really surprising, you know, looking at the EU-China summit, just how wrong apparently China, China got the EU. When, um, you know, the European agenda was to talk about Ukraine and to talk actually about human rights and the Chinese side, you know, walking to talk, wanted to talk about more <laughs> positive things up to the point that I don't know it was intentional or not, um, that the Chinese state media published Xi Jinping's remarks on the summit, which were very much, you know, trade focused and focused on that the EU needs a strategic autonomy and so on and so forth. So published it in the middle of the summit before the summit was even finished. <laughs> and I think what China substantially underestimated is that, um, well, China is not the only country that is ready to 吃苦, to eat bitterness. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and this is something, you know, the Chinese believe that Europe will swallow certain things to keep the trade relations going. And this is, by the way, a blind spot I see not only in China, but actually at the same time in Russia and, and in Europe and the, in the United States, that everyone believes that they are the only one who care about values. It's uh, <laughs> kind of the the Americans thought that the trade war would change something among Chinese people, the Americans and the Europeans collectively thought that imposing sanctions on Russia will lead to the Russian population to revolt against Putin. Certainly not the case. I mean, if we know something about, you know, I'm, I'm exaggerating about Russia, that's, it's that people are uh, really can suffer and are ready to suffer for ideas, ideology and Tsar. And it's also like Russia underestimated that the Europeans will be ready to have an economic downturn for values. And the Chinese, I have underestimated that. And and this surprises me really how this can be such a collective blind
0: spot. That's amazing. I mean, that's you're completely right. You're right. Everyone thinks that they're the only principled actor, uh, that they actually do hue to their values, and everyone else is actually ultimately motivated by money. So yeah, I, 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 when you put it that way, it makes absolute sense to me. I, mean, I had always sort of thought maybe China was particularly susceptible to it because of the Marxism Leninism, you know, the, this, this idea that you know everything else is superstructure; that 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 the the real structure is is the economic, is the the, the relations of production. And I mean, I, I, for example, when China's response to what was happening in Hong Kong always was some variation of you know, if we solve the the, the, the housing situation, if if there were more affordable housing for people, then it, nobody would be in the streets. Opposing this extradition bill, this is just a, a a result of of economic dislocation, huh? But you know, you're you're right. I mean, I, w- I wonder though. I mean, if Americans <laughs> really will trick who and suffer for when it, I I don't know. We'll see how long we can take this. <gasps> oh my God, four dollars a gallon, Gastly so what will in fact europeans reactions to say you know being starved of natural gas and and oil from russia what what will in fact the response be will they just pay more at the pump and suck it up or what what's it, what are they going to do
1: yeah this is a this is a very um very important point you're raising and also something um i feel china has underestimated um, again which surprises me given that chi- given china's ne- own um, transition trajectory the whole debate about decoupling from Russian coal, oil and gas, of course, doesn't land in an empty space. But it lands in the space of a debate that has been ongoing for the past 16 years, basically throughout the whole reign of Angela Merkel, where the Greens and also to a certain extent the Social Democrats have been trying to push for economic transition toward more carbon neutrality which has been extremely difficult because of the interests of the german industry which of course relies uh, on fossil fuels i mean we right. are in german we say we are kind of the export champion export weltmeister so all of that needs to be fueled by something and at the same time i mean everybody understands that this is a transition that needs to happen both for for climate change reason but also to reduce dependence on countries with whom there is potential of conflict. So what we see now is, is an opportunity to speed up this development and to push against, not only to push against interests that prevented the transition, but actually the opportunity to get them on the side of the reformers Because the costs of non-reforming, the costs of staying reliant on um, Russian oil and gas are too high, not only economically, but also just in terms of security and also public opinion.
0: This is an opportunity to to win conservatives to this side as well, because these are things that appeal to them, economic and national security arguments. Exactly. Yeah, and it's you're right, this is another another blind spot. This is what uh Americans say they make lemonade when given lemons. Right? <clears throat> <laughs> uh, so I, I'm I'm curious, let's talk a little bit more about April first in the summit meeting between the EU and China. Of course the EU's foreign affairs chief, as you said, Joseph Borel, called it a dialogue of the deaf. Uh he used a phrase that might have gotten him, you know, Twitter mobbed here in the US, but I guess he couldn't resist that alliteration. Any, anyway, as far as I can tell um, his characterization of it, whether politically correct or not, was not far off at all. What was China actually hoping for? I mean, did they did they think that they would make progress in getting the investment agreement unstuck? Did they think that they could avoid somehow having this difficult conversation about Russia and Ukraine? I I, I just and then I wonder what what Europe's expectations of Chinese behavior would be. I mean, did they think somehow that they would come out of it having convinced? china to to abandon Russia, I mean what it seems like maybe expectations on both sides seem to have been unrealistic
1: um, well, I think on the on the European side, um, the summit was you know perceived as as a, certainly being a very difficult one um, from the mm-hmm, start, mm-hmm. and there were not many expectations of success, but there was an expectation to have a dialogue and to to talk with China on Ukraine and, of course, to try and persuade China to take a stance, even if, you know, to give it a try. Now, on the Chinese side, of course, we know that the Communist Party is a black box. But I mean, this is a really interesting question. And to me, the leadership, or at least what we see of the Chinese leadership at the moment, seems to be unusually disconnected from what is going on in Europe. And This is really surprising because China, of course, does have Europe experts, but either it is that they are not in the environment, in the surroundings of Xi Jinping, or that you know, he doesn't have people who talk truth to him, which would not be surprising, you know, if we remember um, the outcome of the elections in Taiwan, where, um, you know, he was uh, completely surprised, um, yeah, yeah. you know, because nobody have told them about the reality of the polls, obviously. Or whether it's, you know, again, the two years of isolation, Xi Jinping himself not having traveled, being, you know, very little exchange between European and Chinese Chinese actors. But I think what the Chinese leadership has underestimated is just the shared awareness among European leaders about the situation on Ukraine, which was certainly co-created by how Ukrainian President Zelensky is is holding himself in this situation. And, and this phone call, video phone call with the European Council, where he said, you know, this may be the last time, you know, you see me right. talking to you because you know I'm staying here in the conflict. Um, he refused to be flown out. And I think, you know, this did something. And the images coming of Ukraine are doing something. So, I think China really underestimated this power of shared awareness, and it also underestimated just the power of the civil society transnationally, you know, being the civil society in Ukraine that that stayed to fight, civil society in Europe that is protesting and um, organizing help for Ukrainian refugees or, you know, bringing things to the borders, civil society in Russia, um, you know, trying to protest despite huge personal personal dangers, you know, people take ending up in prison for 15 years just for, say, naming this war a war. Even civil society in China, I mean, we've seen Chinese netizens discussing Bucha and comparing it to the Nanjing massacre and, you know, bombarding right. denialists and, you know, government bots telling them, you know, would you also deny the Nanjing massacre if you deny the authenticity of these images? And I think all of that is something the Chinese leadership underestimated because it's so disconnected from what's going on in the rest of the world and disconnected physically, you know, just because due to the lack of, like, really people-to-people exchange.
0: Yeah, I think it's a combination of everything that you've just said, that there's an element of, you know, seize isolation from people who would speak the truth. But, you know, you talk to these European experts in China. Do they themselves have a clearer idea? Do you, do you sense that they're also deluded or that they have a a good picture, a realistic picture, and just simply aren't getting through?
1: Well, those people I talk to, I would say, have have a good picture, but they are not mm. the ones who are getting through. They are the ones right, who right. are in danger of being silenced and have to walk yeah. a really fine line, you know, to, to stay in, in, you know, in their jobs.
0: There's this notion that somehow, no matter how much opprobrium, no matter how the economic consequences play out, that somehow she will stand by Putin. I'm not entirely sure. I, I mean, I still nurture hopes myself. I mean, I recognize that it's kind of far-fetched, but I have thought at various times that, you know, well, look, isn't it really the case that if you've got a super strong entrenched leader, that's the circumstance under which abrupt turns in foreign policy orientation actually can happen. Because, you know, he he's kind of invulnerable. He doesn't, he won't have to pay a price for for making a, a U-turn. He can just sort of say, you know, Eurasia has always been at war with Oceania, or, you know, just the 1984 style, just re- rewrite the truth of it. I also look at things like, some of the things that you pointed out, uh, the way that, that a lot of Chinese netizens have been, have been very, very, Critical, And I I almost sense that this discursive space in China is opening up a little bit. The other thing I I look at is is how incredibly sensitive they are uh, to public embarrassment over the levels of domestic support for Russia. So, you know, this whole kerfuffle over the Great Translation Movement. And this is also, you know, when sub-China was attacked by the Global Times, it was also they, they really hate it right now when any news organization or any Chinese netizen group tells the truth about some of the awful things that other uh Chinese are saying about the Ukraine conflict. If you you know, if we embarrass them somehow by showing how much domestic support there is uh for Russia. I I I think that where does that embarrassment come from? Maybe somebody, somebody regards it as a constraint on their freedom of policy choice in a very fluid and very high-stake situation, like they want to be able to 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 change their minds on this, and we're not helping by by pointing out, you know, what Chinese citizens are saying, some of the awful things, or or that some of the things that are coming out of news news organizations like the Global Times. Anyway, I realize that that's probably very far-fetched, uh, and it's probably as locked in as most people say. But I wonder what you think about this.
1: Well, I, th- I think that I mean. You're right. Then I mean, they are trying to walk a very fine line. And walking the fine line includes not having, you know, the weight on one side or the other. I mean, what is certainly the case is that there are different voices even within the core leadership. And we see reflections of that. You know, even if we mm. look at what Wang Yi is saying, you know, in support of Russian friendship and what the Chinese ambassador to UN has been saying. So clearly, like, even despite you know, this belief that Xi Jinping is the strong man, the question is how strong is he still, we see different voices coming out of China. This is, this is one thing. Um, the other thing is that we talked a little bit about Central Asia, and we should not forget that, God forbid, Russia is successful. Central Asia may very well be next, and yeah. um, this is certainly not in the Chinese interest. Because I mean, China, we know China is massively invested in in Central Asian oil and gas fields. Um, we know that it has, uh, you know, troops, you know, ready to, to cross the border, uh, should this fields be in danger, something that has been built up after the, the Operation Desert Storm when kind of they were a little bit shocked by what the Americans did in Kuwait. And um, certainly when there were protests in Kazakhstan recently yeah, and, and Russia sent In troops very quickly. Um, We didn't see a lot of reporting on the Chinese side, but, you know, just putting one and one together, you could expect that the Chinese government was quite shocked.
0: We should remember how many Russian speakers there are, especially in northern Kazakhstan. Yes. Uh, I mean, ethnic Russians themselves, but also Russian speakers. That seems to be sort of something that Putin uh, uses as a determinant for the level of justifiable intervention, right? So
1: Yes, Russia Russian is still the common language. And, um, yeah. you know, children still travel to Moscow for the, you know, for New Year's celebrations. You know, there is kind of tradition to to have, you know, it's called the the, the Christmas tree, basically, well, the New Year's tree, uh, which is um, something very, very Soviet, where you have before New Year's celebration and there is one in the Kremlin and, you know, the best school students of all over the country used to be invited and still you know school children from kazakhstan from kyrgyzstan travel to moscow for new year the best ones wow, so wow, this wow. you know this 30 years fall, later 30, 30 years later and i remember like when i was working in kyrgyzstan and i happened to cross the border between kyrgyzstan and tajikistan quite a few times by foot they looked at my german passport Um, Where it's written that I was born in Moscow, they say, Oh, one of us, (laughs) you know. So, and and I think, and China is probably, you know, very well aware of that. They're aware that they don't really understand the region, but neither do they want it, you know, to become (laughs) Russian again, nor do they want to have unrest there because of Xinjiang, obviously. Um, and you know, to come back, uh, you know, uh, to your uh, original point, um, where does China stand? I mean, China. China always stands on, on on the side of China, and this supposed closeness to Russia at the moment is probably because there is no alternative. And I keep wondering, and you know, just linking um, to what um, Susan Thornton um, said um, in in her podcast with you, if the US were to offer you know, a diplomatic way out, maybe, you know, similar to what we, we had in, you know, after after 68 under Nixon, when when Russia uh, invaded Czechoslovakia, whether, you know, if China would have, you know, an improved relationship with the United States, where it would, you know, just, you know, drop Russia like a hot potato.
0: Hmm. One can only hope. But right now, China feels like everywhere it turns, it sees evidence of stronger American alliance systems, Uh, you know, whether that's in the east, where you have not just the Quad, but also AUKUS, or obviously to the west, where you have a a revived NATO. There is one cardinal direction where China can still turn and count on, at least so far, a pretty positive reception. You've been working for many years on China's role in development in the global south. So so let's talk about China's global south strategy and, and European reactions to it specifically, not just BRI and the European response, this global gateway idea. Uh, but but also, you know, the European reaction to China's role, if any, in in providing cover for the countries of the global south that aren't completely on board with the European and American-led effort to di- diplomatically and economically isolate and strangle Russia. So let's talk about the, the, the vote to remove Russia from the Human Rights Council, for example. I thought that was really interesting, the number of you know what? What the, the way that the vote went, and uh, who abstained, and who voted no, in sort of solidarity, and and the reasons why they might have. It's it's fascinating to see. What did you make of that?
1: Um, well, I think first of all, you know, I think it's really important to understand that um, for the global South, the war in Ukraine is is the war of the West, and there is a very <laughs> strong feeling just about the difference how refugees from the Middle East or you know from African countries have been treated in the past years in Europe and how differently the refugees um, from Ukraine are treated now. And even to the point that when African students tried to, to flee, flee to Poland um, after the conflict escalated they were stopped at the border so the polish um and it was a thing, i think i'm not sure if it was the polish or the ukrainian um border guards who basically didn't let them pass and said you know it's only ukrainians wow. who can leave. and i mean this this was a huge debate um in social media it sends a very very strong message um to to the global south that you know this is your war we are not part of it um mm. so the the abstaining is not necessarily because they agree with russia the abstaining is rather you know this is your war you know deal with your mess yourself
0: huh that's that's interesting what about uh um- the broader European response to China's efforts. I mean, do you think that they are in very close alignment right now? Does, you know, the fact that the that, that Global Gateway seems to be kind of in alignment with B3W, uh, with Build Back Better World, do you think we should read anything into that? Does this look like another Euro-American sort of entente to confront China in Africa?
1: When we see a number of initiatives, um, both from the European Union, from the United States, from the G7, you know, starting with the European Asia Connectivity Strategy, right, Uh, and then there was the Blue Dot, then there was B3W, and then Global Gateway, and what all of them have in common, unfortunately, is that they seem to be more about solving the West's China problem than addressing the development challenges of the global South.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Because, I mean, to begin with, there was a, actually a wonderful podcast, um, Dan Bannock, um, in Pursuit of Development, um, did with Judy Moore, a former Liberian uh, Ministry of Public Works.
0: Um, yeah, Judy is great. He's yeah. amazing,
1: right? Where he said, like, Europe is so close to Africa, Why did it take China to come and start developing the African infrastructure? Why is there no European infrastructure development plan for Africa? And he also compared um, the BRI with the U.S. war on terror, stating that the BRI was, you know, estimated to be one billion, right? If I'm getting the the English naming of the numbers correctly, and the, the war on terror was six. So he said, like, if the U.S. wanted, it could have had six infrastructure initiatives, for Africa right, or, right, or globally. Right. So why did it take you know, China to come first and now kind of you know, the West starts responding? And Hannah Ryder of Development Reimagined, she, she really you know, carved this really nice phrase I like to borrow, is that we really need to change how we think about development. Development is not about them, you know, somewhere in Africa or in poor places, it's about us. And then mm, un- mm-hmm. until we start thinking of development as our problem, China will be in the lead because, I mean, no matter what the mo- real motives are behind and I mean, the, the Africans understand everything very well. But China comes in with the story of a community of shared future for mankind and says, you know, we are <laughs> doing development for you and for us. And then if you look at the global gateway, it's very fluffy, you know, European principles. But what is it, what is really the European interest? What is it that we really want to do there? This is not spelled out in in the in the global gateway strategy, so this is like when right. I was reading the document, I was like, "Okay, so what what is it? What is our interest in Africa? What is it that we really want to do? Because the whole document is, yeah, whatever it's done should be according to our principles. But
0: but what's the actual offer, right? right?
1: Yes, what is the offer? What is our interest? Why do we want to develop infrastructure in Africa? And this is an answer we have to come up with because,
0: yeah, because the obvious answer that suggests itself is just that well we we want to offer an alternative to china that seems yes. to be the reality of and, it and
1: and this is the wrong answer which the answer should be not we want to offer an alternative to china the answer should be we want you to develop because if you're better off all of us are better off and africa needs not chinese or european money basically you know it needs all of the resources it can get i hope
0: our listeners can hear those lovely church bells tolling in the background <laughs>
1: Yeah, I live in the old town. Oh, that's, of that's there, fantastic. So, um, no, sorry, I, yeah. So. I love it. No,
0: it gives it adds some some real you know atmosphere to this conversation. But Marina, what an absolute pleasure to have you on the program, and and I can't wait to have you back on again. There's obviously so many things that we can talk about together. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time.
1: Thank you for, for the invitation. And um, yeah, it's a pleasure a pleasure to be here with you. Well,
0: I'm not done with you yet because we have to move on to recommendations. I'm really excited to hear what yours is. But first, a quick reminder that the Seneca podcast is powered by SupChina. If you like the work that we're doing and you want to help us to keep the lights on, uh, you can subscribe to SupChina's China Access newsletter, which is curated for you each weekday by Jeremy and his crack team. You will dig it. If you aren't already subscribing, please do. While you're there, check out some of the other great newsletters we put out for free, like our SubChina AM business newsletter or our SubChina Vibe with Zhao Feng puts together. It's, it's all about society and culture in China. It comes out once a week. It's fantastic. Okay, so on to recommendations. Marina, what do you have for us?
1: So what do I have for you is, um, first of all, a book um, yeah, yeah. by Otto Sharmer. Mm -hmm. who is a German organizational psychologist based in MIT. Um, It's called Theory U, Leading from the Future as It Emerges. Hmm. It's, you know, its original background, you know, it's from organizational development, but it's been picked up um, by now by a number of organizations, actually including the UN. Um, And this is about, you know, management and collaboration, um, methodology that prevents us collectively from recreating, you know, and producing outcomes uh, we collectively don't want. Sharma's basic assumption is that we still try to find solutions um, for problems we have created with the same methodology that has created them, uh-huh. and um, at its core is a disconnect, you know, from. From the self, from the environment around us, and in the end, also from the divine, and I find it really fascinating because it helps you really to to break through blind spots that we have been talking about. And just very recently, he released a blog post which he, where he used theory to analyze the Ukraine war, ah. and where he talked about the disconnect. Putin had uh, with the reality also about the blind spots of the West. And, uh, you know, a lot of my analysis of the Chinese leadership at the moment is informed by his perspectives. So even if it's, you know, not a China book, but a more broadly, you know, kind of, you know, management and, and collaboration, it's, it's hugely informed my research. And I can only recommend um, the book to anybody um, just to to start thinking how to resolve blind spots.
0: Sounds great. It sounds like very much in line with a lot of the books that I've been reading recently too. Theory U, Leading from the Future as It Emerges, Otto Scharmer. Wow, that's that's great. I'm definitely going to check that out. I have a couple, really technically three recommendations. The first two are both Fiona Hill related <laughs> I I just read a piece in the New York Times magazine uh, about her, um, th- so that's one of my recommendations. It's by Robert Draper. Uh, it's really great. It's I, I don't remember what the piece is called, but it's it's about Fiona Hill. It's just a profile of her. Uh, and then because it's referenced in that piece, I bought the book. There's nothing for you here, uh, which is her auto her memoir. Uh, Fiona Hill, of course, was the uh, National Security Council senior director for uh, Russia and Eastern Europe and she was of course the key witness in the first Trump impeachment uh so just a fantastic book so far um I was surprised to learn she was actually opposed to Bush's plans to extend NATO membership to, to Georgia and Ukraine um in 2008 the lead of that of that article by Draper starts with her in her first meeting in, in the Oval Office and she made the case against NATO expansion to Bush and Cheney. And Cheney basically said to her, So you're telling me you're opposed to freedom and democracy? And he just sort of like got his things and left. And Bush says, Oh, come on, he's just yanking your chain. Let me hear what you have to say. But anyway, he went ahead he didn't he disregarded what she said anyway and plowed ahead with something like, you know, an extension of, of NATO membership enough to really piss off Putin but I don't want to litigate that whole thing, but it was interesting that that was her perspective. uh She had lots of other re- really tons of great anecdotes. I'm not you know done with her book yet, of course I just started it, but uh, so far it's been just been fascinating. She's a very good writer, very thoughtful and uh and, and obviously has a fascinating biography, which was part of her testimony. uh She grew up literally as the daughter of a coal miner in in northeastern England in you know the blighted industrial northeast. Uh, and made her way despite you know class and accent uh, prejudices that are are very deeply embedded in English society. She got a PhD from Harvard. It's a really good book so far. And so my other recommendation is is a piece uh, it happens also to be in the New York Times Magazine by Stephen Johnson, who is just one of my favorite writers on on all things science. It's about GPT three, which is uh, a really advanced new AI system uh, that is able to to create original writing based on prompts that you give it in, you know, language, just natural language prompts. It, it's, there's a ton of examples in this piece of, of little essays written by GPT-3 just based on prompts that Johnson fed it. It's scary and really quite nuanced, the way he writes about it, and just really deeply informative. It's so good, so good. So look for, look for that one, uh, Stephen Johnson. It's called The Writing on the Wall, uh, and it's in the New York Times Magazine. So check that out if you're interested in these things. Uh, meanwhile, I-, I can't wait to have you back on, Marina. This will be so great. I mean, I- I'm really glad to have met you, and I can obviously see that uh, you are a a good all-arounder and, we'll, we'll, and, and and so thoughtful and uh, so many great ideas. So I, I look forward to having you back onto the program.
1: Thank you so much.
0: The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at com, or just give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at News, and be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care. Hey. Hey.